Thank you for the encouragement and the prayer. What a great day this is. Hello, ladies. Hello and welcome. I love this day so much. The very first day of the fall Women in the Word Bible study. So exciting to be here. Um, it's so good to see all of you all around. So many beautiful faces. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm Deb Haygood. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And it is a privilege. It's an honor. And it's a great joy and thrill to be here with all of you today studying God's Word together. And I want to thank you for coming because I know these are busy days. You could be a lot of different places. You could be doing a lot of different things. And so I am grateful that you have chosen to be here and be a part of studying God's Word with other women. Thank you so much for coming. The first day of Women in the Word is exciting um, and it's amazing and sometimes it can be a little crazy, but it can also be, especially if you're uh, here for the first time, it can be a bit scary or frustrating or even confusing. So just, I'm not supposed to do this, but can't help it. How many of you are here for the very first time in Women the Word? This is your first, oh my goodness, look at you. I love that. I love that. Okay, I have a story for you. Yes. I have a story. Uh, it's when I was six years old. I was starting school for the first time. My family had just moved to um, a town outside of Chicago, and um, I came from a place that had no kindergarten. So I was going straight into first grade. But I wasn't too worried because I knew my ABCs, I could print my name, and I had a brand new pink and white check dress with the little pink sweater with the little short sleeves, um, the late 50s ladies, and so if you have a Mary Ellen American Girl doll, that was the look I was sporting. So I get to school, and I get in my class a little bit late because my mom had to enroll me, so I go in, and the first thing I remember after the teacher shows me my desk is she says to me, um, Debbie, would you like to put your wrap in your locker? Now, some of you have heard this story, and I was terrified. I thought the lockers might be those things around the wall, but I had no idea what my wrap was. So I looked at her and said, no, ma'am. And then the day goes on, and you know what's coming next. I take off my sweater because I've gotten hot, and I say, uh, where should I put my sweater? And my teacher looks at me and says, Debbie, I said you could put your wrap in your locker. Two immediate things fell over me. One, humiliation. I was so embarrassed. I'm like, oh my. But second, enlightenment. Now I knew. My sweater was my wrap. I mean, who knew? I think it was a Chicago thing. <laughs> so if you are here today and your hair's blown back and you're thinking, oh my goodness, what's going on? Um, I don't know where my locker is and what in the world is a wrap? If you are thinking that, we want to answer your questions for you. We, the leadership team has worked so hard trying to make this warm and welcoming and user-friendly, but sometimes that's hard. So if you have questions, please come up afterwards and talk to me or find someone in leadership or at the welcome desk and ask your question. We want to um, fix whatever it is that's making it hard for you because we want you to come back next week and every week for this whole semester. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about an introduction to the book of Psalms. That's where our study is coming from. And then we're going to look at Psalm 6. But first, Misty Denman has asked me to talk for a few minutes about women in the Word. What it is, why we do what we do, how we do it. Um, and 
the heart of Women in the Word, and I'm glad to do that. Misty, by the way, is the minister to women um, at all the Christ Chapel campuses. So Women in the Word is just that, women studying God's Word together. And God's Word is the Bible. Sometimes we call it the Scripture. The Bible is the Word of God. It is God's true story of love and salvation for mankind. God reveals to us himself through the Bible. He does that because God wants us to know him because he wants to be in a relationship with us. And it's been like that from the very beginning. Very beginning, Genesis 1, he creates the whole world and everything in it, including the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And he has a close relationship with them. He talks with them. He walks with them in the garden until one day Satan shows up and says, uh, why don't you just go ahead and eat that fruit from this tree? And uh, it's the one tree that God said, don't eat from. You can have anything in the garden. Just don't eat the fruit from this one tree. But Adam and Eve uh, rebel against God, and they eat the fruit, and sin enters the world, and everything is changed. But God, but God has a plan, and we see it right away in Genesis 3. We see a reference to Jesus Christ who would come to crush Satan's head and defeat death. So the Old Testament is the history leading up to Jesus coming in the New Testament. It's God's history of his people, Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and his son Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And one of those sons, Judah, from his line would come Jesus. And so we go through the Old Testament leading up to the beginning of the New Testament when Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus, son of God, Son of man, he comes to earth to die on the cross to take the penalty of our sin on himself. He is the perfect sacrifice so that we might have a relationship with the holy God. And then he is uh, raised from the dead so that we can be ensured that we will have an eternal relationship with God when we put our faith and trust in Jesus so as we study, um, as we interact with God's word, we get to know him, who he is. He's holy, he's powerful, he's living, he's loving, he is just and merciful. And as we learn about God, we learn about ourselves and others because we are a part of God's story. God weaves our story into his story. Now sometimes we talk and we think, okay, here's my story and God is a part of it. But the truth is, God is over all of this. It's his story, and we are a part of his story. He weaves us in because he loves us. He loves you and me individually. And as we study, as we interact with God's word, it changes us. It transforms us so that we look more like Jesus. Now, that may be hard to believe, but it's true. And there's some of you here that can testify to that very thing. God's word is alive and powerful. Alive and powerful, active and effective. And I have a verse on your verse sheet that tells us about that. Hebrews 4.12. You'll have an extra verse sheet, by the way, each week, along with your outline. So Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
God's word is powerful. And 2 Timothy, it's not on your verse sheet, but 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us this. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It is breathed out by God. Even though God, um, the Bible was written by human authors, the Holy Spirit inspired them. So this is God's word. We read that, 2 Peter 1, 20, on your verse sheet. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word, God's word, and it transforms us. As we read God's story, the reality of God becomes more real to us, and we are changed. Now, that's why we study the Bible. So how do we do it? Well, in small groups. You come to your small groups, and you share God's truth with each other each week. And we give you study questions to help you with that. You'll have three pages of study questions that um, you do each week, and they are over that portion of Scripture that we are studying. This semester, it'll be one psalm, a different psalm each week. And you have those study questions to direct us and to lead us into the truth in the Bible. So those questions are for you. They are designed for you. They are for your benefit to help you find insight and understanding in the Bible. Now, we have different kinds of questions. Some of them are just observation. What does this verse say? Some of them are thinking questions. What does this verse mean? What is God trying to reveal to me? And then sometimes there's questions that ask us, how will this change our life? How will this change the way I live and walk with Jesus now that I know these truths about God? What difference will it make? So you begin doing your study questions at home by praying and asking the Holy Spirit to give you insight and wisdom and understanding, and he will. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes you have to ponder and think about it for a while, um, and the more time that you spend on your lesson, the more time you give the Holy Spirit to work. Now, maybe you don't have a lot of time. That's okay. Do what you can. Maybe you don't have any time at all, and you don't get to the questions. We want you to come on to Women in the Word anyway. Come on to Bible study and um, be a part. What about if you have a hard question you just can't find the answer to? Skip it. Just skip it and go on. That's okay. We do not want you to get stressed out or discouraged trying to think about what is the right answer. Just the opposite. We want you to dive into the Bible as if it was a clear, cool, refreshing pond on a hot summer's day. Refreshing. We want you to immerse yourself in God's word and find it exciting and interesting and relevant. We want you to experience the thrill in your heart from God's word becoming a part of you, drawing you into that deep, joy-filled, abundant life with Jesus so enjoy the questions and then come back and share your thoughts and insights with your small group. Now, there's probably one of you or two of you out there saying, hey, this is my first time to Bible study. I am pretty sure I'm not going to have anything to say in my small group. 
You will. Let me assure you, you will, because the Holy Spirit will give you insights into God's Word, and you need to come back and share it. You might say the most important thing that is said all day. We all need to come back and share with our small groups because that is how we learn and we grow. Uh, then, after the discussion, there will be a teacher who comes, the one that wrote the questions, and she will come. She will have studied the passage very deep with much insight. She'll come tying it all together. You don't want to miss the teaching time. Oh, I forgot to say one thing. Between discussion and the teaching time, there's a short time of prayer because we want you to get to know each other and pray for each other. But that time is short. So my suggestion, make it personal, keep it short. Okay. That's uh, why we study it. That's how we study it. And one last thing that I want you um, to know is that our teachers all come from women in the word. We're all part of women in the word. They understand you because they are just like you. We have no guest speakers. We want to study God's word to interact with it so that we might experience life change and know God so, hope that's helpful, hope that's encouraging, and uh, let's go on now, though, and talk about Psalms, the book of Psalms. That's where our study is coming from this semester. Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. If you open it up right to the middle, you should come to Psalms. Psalms is part of the wisdom literature, and the book of Psalms contains 150 individual Psalms written by several different authors each one inspired by God, and they were written over hundreds of years. Moses wrote the first one, Psalm 90, that's the oldest psalm, and then the um, last written psalm was uh, after the time of the Babylonian captivity of the Israelites. But most of the psalms were written right in between that, during the time of David and Solomon, and that is because David wrote um, more psalms than any other psalmist, a great deal deal more. He wrote um, half of the Psalms in the Bible. And this semester, we are going to be studying 11 of David's Psalms. The word Psalm comes from a Greek word, which means a poem to be sung to the accompaniment of a stringed instrument. So from this definition, we learn that the Psalms are poetic prayer songs lifted up to the Lord in worship. They're prayer songs some theologians call Psalms the prayer book of the Bible. Uh, some call it the hymn book of the Bible. And it is both of those. They are prayer poems meant to be sung to the Lord. Individual Psalms have been sung in corporate worship and by individuals over the centuries, throughout the centuries. Even today, some of our courses, some of our hymns are from the Psalms. And you might know some of those. You might remember that. And if you think about it, a stringed instrument is usually involved. So they're prayer poems meant to be sung to the Lord. They're poetry. Hebrew poetry has a couple of distinctives. And so um, don't think of this as an English class. I'm not going to bore you. But I think if you know these three things, it will help you understand the Psalms. First, parallelism. Each verse, or almost every verse, has two parts set alongside one another. And the second part clarifies or gives meaning to the first part, sometimes by restating the first part, sometimes by adding some more information, and sometimes with a contrast. They say the opposite to help you understand that first part. 
And then um, second technique, Hebrew poetry uses imagery. That's picture language. And the first thing that came to my mind was Psalm 42, 1. And you all, I've put it on your verse sheet. Um, it says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. With that imagery, we can see the psalmist is thirsting for the Lord, just like a deer is thirsting for water. And you almost might remember that as a chorus we sing. As the deer pants. Okay, there's enough of that. Um, <laughs> third technique is hyperbole or exaggerated language that the psalmist uses to make a point. And I understand hyperbole um, because I use it frequently, much to my husband's dismay. I say things like, I'm starving to death. That means I'm hungry. Or this summer, I have found myself saying, I'm melting. Now, I, I'm not literally melting, but you get the picture. I am very hot. Psalm 6 that we're going to look at in a minute, it has some great examples of hyperbole. So the Psalms are very real prayers sung to the Lord in every imaginable situation filled with every emotion. Joy, sadness, praise, despair. Faith, confusion, anger, thanksgiving. Since the Psalms are poetry, they are emotional. They are dealing with real feelings, deep feelings, sometimes raw feelings. They are not so much thinking as an understanding, that's what most of the Bible is, as much as they are expressing emotions and feelings. And so they stir our hearts. The Psalms touch us. That's why they are so beloved over all these years. The Psalms were written out of the psalmist's most profound experiences, and they bring these experiences into God's presence. That is so important. They bring their experiences into God's presence. So we see how people act when they are conscious of God. We want to be conscious of God in our life. God is the initiator of all things. He is uh, sovereign. He's in the midst of all that's going on in every situation we find ourselves. God is speaking to me, speaking to you. He's speaking first. And so how do I respond to God? What do I say to him? The Psalms teach us what to say. The Psalms are answering language. Answering language. God knows that we sometimes don't know what to say to him. That's prayer. Um, talking to God. Sometimes we don't know what to pray. So God in his goodness and his grace gives us the Psalms, answering language. What to say, how to respond and answer God in whatever situation we find ourselves. So that's our prayer, our goal for this semester, that the Psalms will better equip us to answer, to respond to God all the time and in every situation we find ourselves. This semester, we're going to look at several different types of psalms. First, laments. Now, laments, those are those sad songs of distress, despair, grief, difficulty. The psalmist is calling out to God for help or rescue. One author said this. I thought this was um, profound. Laments are not just random screams in the night, but expressions of pain of real people who exercise faith in the living God. They're expressions of pain, not random screams in the night. 
but expressions of pain of real people who exercise faith in the living God. Psalms of lament give us a model of godly response to suffering. The psalmists are not stoic. They are not stuffing the pain down. We do not have to stuff the pain down and put a smile on our face. But instead, we pour out our hearts to our good and powerful great God. Now, there are many laments in scriptures. In fact, it's the second uh, largest category of psalms because life is often hard. One commentary said this, there are two themes in psalms. One, life is hard. Two, God is good. I thought that was interesting, but anyway, second category, trust and faith. Those are psalms that give us words of commitment along with petition and acceptance. We're going to look at some faith psalms this semester. Also, third category, meditation and wisdom. Meditation psalms, that's where the psalmist is talking to God about God's character, who he is, and what he has done. God's character and the truth of God as we live out our lives. They give from these psalms, we gain wisdom and perspective. God's perspective, who I am in light of who God is. Fourth, confession and repentance. We're going to look at Psalm 51. It's a great uh, psalm of confession. We need these psalms because we all make mistakes. We're sinners. So we need these words. And also in these psalms, we find God's mercy and forgiveness. And then the last category is praise and thanksgiving. Those are the words lifted up to the Lord, exalting his character, who he is, what he's done. There's more praise psalms than any other category in the book of Psalms. In fact, almost every psalm has at least one verse that's a praise to the Lord. The psalms teach us what our attitude should be and how to talk to God about all the different emotional, social, spiritual needs that we have. And from the Psalms, we learn to put God powerful, good, loving, tender, holy, just, to put the greatness of God next to our situation. And we gain understanding. We gain perspective when we do that, God's perspective. That is why some call the Psalms the best guide for practical living. Others call the Psalms the medicine chest of the Bible because this is where we learn the remedy for our ills. So as you study David's Psalms this semester, find words to pray to the Lord in all your situations. So with that introduction of Psalms, let's look at Psalm 6. This is written by David. We are looking at Psalms that David wrote this semester because two of our recent studies were First and Second Samuel. And those two books tell us the story of David, his whole life story. Real quickly here, David had a whole heart for God his whole life. He loved and trusted and obeyed God because David believed God was the sovereign ruler overall. David believed God was completely righteous, always merciful, and that God's will was always best. And this was his attitude his whole life. From the time he was a young shepherd boy to killing Goliath to being a warrior for Israel to being the one that God chose to be king over Israel. And David was a great king. He also made great mistakes, great sins. 
He confesses and he repents and God forgives him. But David still suffers the consequences of those sins. And as we learned in 2 Samuel last year, those consequences were also great. So that's a brief description of David, the author of this uh, psalm study. So now let's look at Psalm 6. Psalm 6 um, has a little words next to it that is called a superscription. Now, not every psalm has a superscription, but if you see one there, read it because there's important information in it. So let's read this. To the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Sheminath, a psalm of David. So we get the information here. Um, this is a psalm written by David. And he is giving directions to the head choir director on how to sing this song. He wants it sung with stringed instruments um, according to the shimoneth. Now, we don't know what that shimoneth, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it, what that means. But it has something to do with eight, like an octave, maybe a low note octave. Or maybe it's an instrument with eight strings, and those would have some low notes on it too. I have a picture, by the way, we can put that up, of an instrument with eight strings. This might have been what they used in David's time. David would want an instrument with low notes because David wants this song sung with low notes because it is a very sad, deeply distressed lament. This might be the lament of all laments. David is in anguish, deep distress. We might say today, David is not doing well. He is in a very bad place. So let's see what David says to the Lord in the midst of this situation. O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O oh Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O oh Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Short but really great psalm. And the first thing we see, David is calling out to the Lord over and over again. We see David say, oh Lord, oh Lord, five times in those first four verses. David goes straight to the Lord with his cry for help. And it seems from the words in verse one that David feels some distress about sin. He feels that God is kind of displeased. Words like rebuke, rebuke me not in your anger, discipline me not in your wrath. That word rebuke, that can mean hot displeasure, and discipline is correction or punishment. So David feels God's displeasure, but he knows God is his only hope. And so he continues his plea to the Lord. Verse 2, we see two pleas there. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Heal me, O Lord. Now, some of your translations, um, instead of gracious, they have mercy. Mercy. 
Now, grace is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And David knows that is who God is, a God of grace and mercy. His next plea, heal me, um, that is the Hebrew word for healing that is applied to sickness, just like we would think, healing of sickness. We know that David's bones are troubled. He is physically ill. He is in need of healing. He's in great anguish, but not just physically, also emotionally, because in verse 3, we see that word, my soul is greatly troubled. Now, the word here for soul refers to the mind. So it's mental distress, spiritual distress. And we know that that emotional mental distress can also affect our physical health. You all probably have some example of that. Maybe you know an older person that has been married for years and years and their spouse dies and they are so grief-stricken that they soon become ill as well. Or maybe in your own life, you have suffered some great difficulty. You have been very distressed over some time until you become physically ill. The emotional and the physical are often connected, and this seems to be the case in David's situation, maybe brought on by consequences of some sin of David's. And then that end of verse 3, it says, But you, O Lord, pause, pause, pause. How long? You know, it seems like maybe David doesn't know what to say, or maybe he was going to say a complaint or a grumble. Maybe he was going to say something like, Lord, I thought you had my back. I thought you would intervene before now. Or maybe just, God, don't you care? Those are some things that I would fill in to that blank. But David simply asks, how long? How long? And you can feel the agony in those two words. How many of you have asked the Lord, how long? I know I have, and so I was really glad to see David asking it there. It's okay for us, for us to say, how long, Lord? Now, you may not get an answer, or maybe he says, wait, which is an answer. I feel like most of the time when I say that, God is just saying, hold on, hold on, Deb, just hold on a little longer. And then we see um, the, in verse 4, the plea continues. Three pleas we see here. Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life. Save me. Turn, deliver, save. Turn your face towards me. David deeply desires always a close relationship with the Lord, a face-to-face relationship with the Lord. And right now, he doesn't feel God's presence. It feels to him like God has turned away. We know that feeling of someone turning away, maybe a child or another relationship, and they turn away, you instantly feel rejection, and it's hard. How much more so when you feel like it's God that has turned away? So David's desire, his great desire, is for God to turn back towards him, that he might have a close relationship. And it's almost like David might be thinking, if you turn, Lord, then you'll deliver me and save me. He's saying, deliver me from death. David believes he's dying, literally dying. And why would God save him? You know, verse 4, David doesn't lift up any reasons uh, that he has done something good for God to save him. He doesn't say, hey, God, I've been a good king, 
or um, God, I have trusted and obeyed you my whole life. He doesn't say any of that. Those are some things maybe I want to say when I'm praying to God. But David knows it's not what he has done, but it is because of who God is, because of who he is. We see there in verse um, 4 that he says, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. It's God's love that will save David, his steadfast love. Now, that word in the Hebrew, it's one of my favorite words. It is hesed. Hesed, it means God's loyal, merciful, loving kindness that he shows to his people. It's God's faithful, unfailing love. It's a covenant love. God cannot not love his people. And so David's asking, out of that great love, save me, Lord. From verse 5, we see, again, David thinking that he is on death's doors. He says, for in death, there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Sheol is another word for grave. So David thinks he's literally dying. And he wants to live, to remember God, and to praise God. He wants to live. I thought those two actions, they've sort of captured my attention. I've been thinking about it for a couple of months, remembering God and praising God. Now, because David says this to God, I thought this must be important to God. And so if this is important to God, then I want to live my life remembering God and praising God. So how do I do that? How do we do that? Well, one thing I started doing um, when I wake up in the morning, try to remember, sometimes I don't, but I try to open my eyes and I say, this is the day the Lord has made, let me rejoice in it. And that's not unique because um, others have probably told you that over the years. Plus, it's from Psalm 118, 24. This is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. I just try to personalize it by saying, I will rejoice and be glad in it. So I want to remember God first thing and praise him for this day. Praise him that I'm alive. And then throughout my day to remember what God has done, his provision for me. That comes right away when I get my first cup of coffee. Thank you, Lord. Praising you for the provision. As we go through our day with our relationships and with the things that happen and the blessings, Lord, make me aware. I want to remember you in the midst of my day and praise you. Think about it, ladies. How can you remember God and praise him throughout your day? So let's move from David's plea to David's plight. Now, we don't know when this is written, but some think it's when David was on the run from his son Absalom, who wanted to kill David and take over the throne. Now, this was a very difficult time for David on many different levels. First, he loved his son, Absalom, who was trying to kill him. Second, David realized that Absalom's behavior stemmed in part from David's sin. That doesn't excuse Absalom, but David realizes from his sin, this could have caused some of this behavior because David had made some grave mistakes with his children. And we also know that during this time, David was very weary. Um, 2 Samuel, on your verse sheet, 16, 14, tells us this. And the king, that's David, and all who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. They were running away from Absalom, and there he refreshed himself. But 
regardless of what was, um, when this was happening, we know that David is weary. In fact, verse 2 tells us he is languishing. Now, languishing is an interesting word. I used to think that was kind of like the woman in the chair with her hand or bring me some iced tea. But languishing is really much more distressing than that. It's much worse than that. It's some of your translations say faint or weak. Those are better definitions. It's great distress. David is in much worse shape. He is so faint to the point that he can't even walk. His bones are troubled. And for a mighty warrior, this must have been really hard. He's physically and spiritually and emotionally sick. The NIV uses the word agony. He is in agony. This is serious pain and distress, great anguish. So regardless of what's going on, where he is, where this story takes place, we know David is miserable, he is weary, and he is suffering greatly emotionally and physically. Then in verses 4 and 5, we just talked about that. We know that David feels like his life is on the line. He is literally facing death. And then let's read verses 6 and 7. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who... Oh, sorry, that's verse 5. Verse 6, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. This is a great example of hyperbole or exaggerated language. We kind of picture his bed floating around the room in a sea of tears. The point David is trying to make, he is in pain. David's pain on a scale of 1 to 10, that's kind of a nurse question, it's an 11. He's off the charts. He is in so much pain. He's not just crying a few tears. He is wailing and sobbing and weeping all night long. He has no sleep. His eyes are puffy and red. You know, maybe you have cried like that at some time. Your eyes are swollen. You really can't see very well. And you know, sometimes when we are in great distress, heartbreak, loss, grief, sometimes that's all we can do is cry and call out to the Lord, oh Lord. And from David's prayer song, we learn that we can bring honest tears to the Lord. Sometimes they might be tears of joy, happiness, but often it's tears of frustration, anger, despair, hopelessness, helplessness, grief, loss, disappointment, all those things that we might feel, we can bring those tears to the Lord as well. Those tears that we cry in the night, we don't have to hide them. We don't have to be ashamed of them or feel bad about them. Those honest tears we can take to the Lord, calling out to him for help with whatever is causing our pain. And we also get a little more information in verse 7. This is a great example, just want to change the thing, of parallelism. It says, my eye wastes away because of grief. And then the second part of that verse gives us some information. It grows weak because of all my foes. Enemies. David, for the first time, mentions enemies. So he's not only feeling that God has turned away from him. There are enemies pursuing him, causing David's anguish much weeping, and sleepless nights. So let's look now at these last verses. Verse 8, let me read them again. 
Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Oh, my. Do you hear that difference there? Something has changed with David's tone. He now is upbeat and confident and hopeful. He has confidence. He's talking here about God working in a moment when just a few um, verses he was saying, how long? He has a different perspective now. David has been touched by the Lord. Something has happened with David. Nothing has changed outwardly in his situation, but inwardly, David is aware of God's presence. He is aware that God has heard and accepts his prayer, and he's confident that God will save him. Light has broken in on his darkness. Sometimes we get an answer right away from the Lord. Sometimes, even when we're praying, we get that feeling of peace that washes over us, that um, goes deep inside us, that peace that passes understanding. But sometimes we don't get it right away. Sometimes we um, have to pray over and over again. And we don't really know how many times David has prayed this prayer before this touch of God fills him with peace. So what do we do in times of deep distress or sorrow or grief or loss, all those hard things in our life? What have we learned from David's psalm? What are some words that we have found that we can use to answer God? Well, three things. First, I think I see here, call out to the Lord. First thing, call out to the Lord. Before you do anything else, call anyone else, um, read anything else, call out to the Lord. Second, share your heart and your honest tears with them. Share how you're feeling with the Lord. And then third, keep calling out over and over and over again. Hold on until you're aware of his presence and his peace. We've come to the end of this psalm. I hope you come back next week because we are going to have a praise psalm to look at. And I just want to say that all semester long, let the psalms equip you to bring every experience into God's presence with honest prayer. And remember, life is sometimes hard. God is always good. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are good. You love us so much. You give us your word that we can study and know you. Lord, you give us words when we don't know what to pray, to lift up to you in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for these women that you've brought to this study. I pray, Lord, that you would touch their hearts, that the Psalms would just be meaningful, that you would teach us things from your Psalms that we don't know otherwise. Lord, bless these women as they go out. Bring them back next week. We love you, Lord, with all our hearts. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Deb.